It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we have a big hour coming your way as we look back at 20 years since 9-11 with Ari Fleischer, who's by the president's side. Can you imagine what it would be like being press secretary at that time? Ari Fleischer will be with us live. And, of course, we'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. Every story is valid. If you're an American especially, and if you're located around the country, around the world, you listen. I know we get the emails, we get the correspondence, so uh, we get the text messages, so I see it. So if you want to reflect, too, from your vision, from where you are, I'd like to hear it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. Imagine that, a president tough yet kind. That is President George W. Bush, 9-11, 20 years later. Since the attacks, we've had four presidents. Who do you think best understood the challenges of Islamic terror and formulated the best strategy? Has the country really forgotten about 9-11? Have you? Let's go back. Should we go back to that 9-11 mentality or the 9-10-01 mentality? Where do you fall? And what will your thoughts be on Saturday? Number two. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated. Unbelievable. Did you see this speech? Hostile, confrontational, it's kind of confrontational and divisive. That's how I summarize President Biden's six-point COVID plan that he announced on Thursday. He wants to fight Republican governors, mock unvaccinated Americans, and punish Americans who don't comply. Is that leadership? Number one. Can you explain a little bit more about why the White House in a statement is calling the Taliban businesslike and professional? Well, we wanted to note that the Taliban was cooperative in facilitating the portrait of these American citizens and legal permanent residents from Hkaya. Huh. Uh, unbelievable. Jen Psaki, nice try. President Biden attempts to distract from his titanic, catastrophic, irresponsible evacuation and surrender from Af- Afghanistan, and it will not work. Americans still felt left behind and feel that way today. They are left behind in a terror state. And the terror threat grows daily. And our superpower profile takes a hit globally. But guess who they are indeed praising as professional? The Taliban. I'm not kidding. They did. Why? Because they, uh, the Qataris, they deserve a lot of credit, although they double deal. They put a commercial flight into Kabul airport. It's there, right? I'm at Karzai airport. And they go in and they say, we have room for 200 Americans. The State Department says, we invited 30. Who do we get? We got 10 Green card holders and 10 Americans. Why? Because 
they decided they wanted to stay and not to show up. No, I'm pretty sure they decided, not that they decided to stay, that whole problem of a family left behind is the issue or the problem of not being able to get to the plane in time is the issue. But instead, we have an administration uh, praising the Taliban as professional. And I'm not kidding. They actually put that in a text, in, in text, they put that out. I want to get to it exactly because I think in in its honesty and candor, it shows you exactly what is wrong with this scene and this administration. We have to kiss the butt of a terrorist regime back in power with our equipment in order to get more of our people out. The woman's name is Emily Emily Horn. uh, She's the NSC spokesperson. Here it is. The Taliban have been cooperating in facilitating the departure of American citizens and lawful permanent residents on charter flights. They have shown flexibility, and they've been businesslike and professional in our dealings with them, their effort. This is a positive first step. We will continue these efforts to facilitate the safe and orderly traveling of American citizens. I'm watching video last night of them whipping women for marching, and I see video and stills of pictures of journalists with the reddest marks and the biggest cuts you've ever seen on their backs and on their arms and on their legs because they wanted to cover a story. That's businesslike and professional. We're keeping an eye on Taliban 2.0 because they want acceptance. We're holding them accountable. Are you kidding me? Cut to. Well, you're saying the Taliban is businesslike and professional. Their interior minister has an FBI wanted poster. He's got a $10 million bounty on his head. That's What's the business? We are here to celebrate the return of American citizens who wanted to leave Afghanistan, of legal permanent residents, of Afghans who fought by our side to Qatar successfully on a Qatari Airlines flight. Uh, and in order to get those people out, we had to work with some members of the Taliban to press them uh, and to work uh, in a business-like manner to get them out. That is what we were stating in the statement. And in that statement, it says this is a positive first step. Towards what? Towards getting additional people out who want to leave Afghanistan. Hmm. I don't blame her. I really don't. It's not her policy. 10 U.S. citizens, 11 green card holders on Qatari Air. Uh, There was room for 200. And I talked to General Jack Keane, who's talked to others. There is hundreds, not 100, of Americans behind enemy lines. Many of outside Kabul, even the ones in Kabul, can't get out. And now, to the Defense Department's credit, they're working with Operation Pineapples and others because we know what they know where they are, and the Defense Department doesn't. But guess who's standing in their way? The ineffectual State Department, who has no emerging man, emergency management skills. That's not what they do. But this president has left them in charge. And I wonder this, and Nathan Sales said it, former counterterrorism coordinator, how much did we pay to get those 20 out? Cut seven. We have to assume that the Taliban is not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing this because they're hoping to extract concessions. And so I think one of the things we really need to hear from the White House is, what was the price that we had to pay in order to induce the Taliban to allow these people to escape? I think we need to be very clear. Uh, the safe return of Americans home is non-negotiable. We're, we're not going to trade away diplomatic recognition or sanctions relief to get our people home. We're going to get them home, period, in full stop. 
Unbelievable. Uh, and I'm telling you, they're doing stuff behind the scenes, and it's going to be ugly, and the other networks aren't going to cover it. The other shows aren't going to be interested in it. I know you are, and I know independents are, and I know people like AOC and others like that that will think Don Lemon's a god have no interest in the facts, even though they're making our country more vulnerable. And when things start blowing up here and people get assassinated there and kidnappings take place and swaps will happen, we are going to all care about it. I cared about it, and and our whole staff did. The minute Donald Trump started talking to the Taliban, I knew it was a mistake. There's no way Trump would have done this. But what is happening right now is so beyond my worst possible scenario, I'm having trouble enunciating it. But I do want to talk about the big distraction that took place yesterday. And that was that coronavirus speech Joe Biden gave to vilify those who didn't get a vaccine, who might have natural immunity, might not be able to take it, or chose not to. I always thought we wouldn't ask the president to give us medical advice, but apparently I am wrong. Cut 10. Many of us are frustrated with the nearly 80 million Americans who are still not vaccinated, even though the vaccine is safe, effective, and free. And he goes on, cut 11. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it's caused by the fact that despite America having unprecedented and successful vaccination program, despite the fact that for almost five months, free vaccines have been available in 80,000 different locations, we still have nearly 80 million Americans who have failed to get the shot. And what he's doing now is making companies with over 100 people demand everybody get vaccinated. Do you ever think that would happen in our country? Demand everybody get vaccinated. Mike Pence was on with us first interview in about six months. He did radio with us. I think we were one of his first interviews, maybe his second. But on television, he did. He said, it's just un-American. He goes, I was in charge of the task force. And I had to overcome Kamala Harris candidate and, and candidate Joe Biden saying, don't trust the vaccine. And other Democrats saying, I wouldn't trust anything from Donald Trump. They're now using the vaccine and berating and fining people for not doing it. And you wonder why people don't trust it. The DHS will increase fines for mask violations in airports. And they'll be fining people now starting at 250 ranging upwards to $500 if you don't have one. The DHS says the first-time offenders will see a fine of 500 now and 1000 after that. Gary, you're in Daytona, Illinois. Gary, what's on your mind? Daytona, Florida, I should say. What's on your mind, Gary? No problem, Brian. No, I, the speech was horrendous. I mean, uh, the people have to realize, uh, I'm praying they realize that we incorporate freedoms from the time we wake up until we lay our head down. I mean, there's nothing about this country where you start your day off. I mean, you choose everything has to do with freedoms. And for him to just blatantly say uh, this, this is, is not you know, about your freedom, it's not about your freedoms. And that's about it, Brian. Go get him, Gary. one uh, 866 Listen, bottom of the hour, Ari, Refle- Ari Fleischer looks at the danger, which is now the Taliban back in power with $80 billion worth of American hardware and technology, including helicopters, uh, uh, mine-resistant uh, Humvees, and more, including our uniforms they'll be celebrating in our embassy. Ori Fleischer on that and with President George W. Bush on that day. Did he ever anticipate this happening 20 years later? And then next, 
I was able to go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to go to the open fields and beautiful area of Pennsylvania to see where Flight 93 came down and talk to two members on that uh, family members, survivors um, who have family members on that plane that helped save the Capitol building and perhaps the White House. Not only did I have a chance to see this incredible memorial that was coming out of uh, really the foothills of the mountains, but I had a chance to see where the plane landed, what has been done in their memory. You're going to hear some of the final phone calls from Flight 93, all in a piece that aired at, uh, on Fox & Friends earlier. In case you missed it, I don't want you to, so I'm going to replay it here. Ideally, you'd be able to see it, but it's going to really work for radio, and I think you really need to understand how great those Americans were on that flight. It was just 40. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everyone. Ari Fleischer coming up in a few minutes, but I want you to hear this story. I went out to Shanksville last week. Five-and-a-half-hour drive back, uh, an hour-and-a-half from Pittsburgh to go to this beautiful area of the country. You would have no idea the drama that took place in the skies, uh, you know, thousands of feet above. It would save the Capitol building and and dozens and thousands of other Americans that would have been caught in their wake when four hijackers, not the fifth, uh, were overcome by 30 crew, 33 crew members and seven uh 33 passengers and seven crew members. Here's the story of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You cannot talk about Flight 93 on September 11, 2001, and not talk about the other flights. It tells the complete story. 8.46, one world trade is hit. 16 minutes later, roughly, the second tower would be hit. At 9.37, the Pentagon. But up above at 10.03, 33 passengers and seven crew members would be in the fight of their lives. Your older brother, Joey, his birth name is Lewis, but you called Joey. When did you realize he's on Flight 93? My wife is calling me, and she said, hey, just got off the phone with your dad. He believes Joey was on one of the, the flights. Yeah, he was my older brother. He was my protector, but he also was a great role model to be. And I had that honor and pleasure of walking in his footsteps. Lorraine, your cousin, she was the senior flight attendant on that flight. Tell me about Lorraine. Both of you have a special connection. She was kind of the bigger sister that I didn't have. You were working so hard to keep her name and legacy alive. I have two granddaughters and, and both carry on Lorraine's name. When you think about Flight 93, so much is so vivid because of so much was recorded. You had two black boxes that were preserved. You had 35 air phone calls. You don't have to imagine the horror of their last moments. The news is that it's been hijacked by terrorists. Negative contact, we're looking at United 93. Somebody call, please. United 93 may have a bomb on board. United 93 is 29 minutes out of where? Uh, he's heading towards the Washington area. It was something miraculous that these mostly strangers came together in such a short period of time and were able to not only make a decision, come up with a plan and put it into action. I truly believe today that if those 40 people didn't do that, Flight 93 would, would may have reached its intended target. What strikes me so much here in Shanksville 
is everything seems to mean something. Come into the park, you're gonna see a structure that's 93 foot tall. That's called the Tower of Voices. This tower holds 40 wind chimes. And those chimes are different sizes, different lengths, representing the, the ages and the different people uh, of Flight 93. Before this was here, there was called a temporary memorial. It was nothing but like a chain link fence and a huge part of the country would come and leave tributes. We thought when we started playing this, we wanted to have something like that so people could leave tributes behind. A common field one day, a field of honor forever. As you're walking from the parking lot to here, it actually kind of gives you an idea what they were facing and how confined the space was. Field of vision is blocked by the large walls that kind of simulate that you're actually looking on an airplane window. And the walls, the height that the plane was as it approached the field. Right now, we are walking down the actual flight path that Flight 93 took. And actually, if you look at the wall of names right through here, is they're also mirroring the flight path. This is where they're fighting. I think when you think about looking back at this memorial, looking over our shoulders where the visitor center is, they're actually, you know, making their assault. They're actually running up the, you know, the aisleway towards the cockpit as it's coming this way. Look at this fence. It actually only gets open one time a year, and that's on September 11th for the families. As you look out to that field, I see a rock there. The rock actually shows you where the impact site is for the visitor who's coming here. In front of the rock are three caskets that, that are buried, and they were all the unidentifiable remains that were found here. This is their final resting place. 20 years later, what a tribute. History is in history if it's not recorded, if nobody remembers it. Because of this memorial, we hope that people will remember it forever. Only the family members are able to hear the cockpit video. I am not able to get that, but they really believe they penetrated the cockpit. And in Arabic, you hear with the other hijackers tell this guy, Zara, who was the weakest flyer, and they only had four. Other hijackers had five on the plane. The 20th hijacker they think was Masawi or somebody else out of Miami. We're not sure still to this day. He said, D uh, dump it. Dump the plane. At which time he flipped it on, uh, on its belly. So it flipped over, uh, actually, on its head. And then it would crash right into that town. You know what's on the other side of that woods in Shanksville? A grammar school. So if they were going to crash anywhere, they picked the perfect place. Also great for us, there was a black belt in judo on that plane. There was a black belt in karate. There was a national rugby champion. There were two wrestlers. Uh, one of the guys we talked to, his brother was a weightlifter, 195, ripped from muscle, an all-star hockey player, field hockey player. And we believe that one of the flight attendants had boiling water, maybe two of them. So they got in there and they threw it right on the guys. If not, uh, Zabida said it was going to hit the White House. He's one of the Al-Qaeda uh, Al terrorists. Uh, the others, uh, most other people believe it was going to hit the Capitol building because it was a bigger target. Regardless, absolute heroes. Because people were reporting the other towers were on fire, they knew what these guys were going to do. Incredible courage. Everybody who shows up asks themselves one question. What would I do in that spot? When we come back, Ari Fleischer. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Captain Lauer came up to me and said, oh my God, another plane at the other tower at the World Trade Center. I knew that it was not an accident. I knew it wasn't a coincidence. I knew that it was an organized attack. I actually reflected on the initials UBL, Osama bin Laden, and I knew about Al-Qaeda. I knew about the attacks on the World Trade Center in early 1993, and I decided to pass on to the president two facts, make one editorial comment, and to do nothing to invite a conversation with him. I knew he was in front of second graders, in front of a press pool. I presumed there would be a boom microphone over him, and I didn't want to have a conversation with him. I stepped into the room. I thought about what I would say, and when the students were told to take out their books to read with the president, that's when I went up to the president, leaned over and whispered into his right ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. I believe that my words then caused the president to reflect on his job. No longer was <clears throat> the presidency about his agenda. It was about the oath of office that he took to preserve, protect, and defend. And I was very impressed how he reacted when I told him he did nothing to introduce fear to those young second graders. He didn't do anything to demonstrate fear to the media that would have translated it to the satisfaction of the terrorists. So I was very impressed with how he reacted. He also stayed there long enough for me to get things ready for him when he walked back into that holding room. Andy Card, uh, former chief of staff of President George W. Bush, reflecting on 9-11, the attack. They were at a school in Sarasota, Florida, at which time the president finished reading the book, and then he went in and he realized America was at war. Ari Fleischer, also there that day, he joins us now. Ari, um, when Andy Card's leaning over talking to the president, where are you? I'm about 20 feet over the president's left shoulder, leaning against the wall. And about 30 seconds, a minute before Andy walked in, Brian, I got a page, it was the second page I got that day, saying the second tower had been hit, and I instantly knew it had to be terrorism. So you went to another room and got ready for the president? What was discussed in that room, if I got that right? What was discussed in that room? I, I stayed in the room where the president was doing the reading. Andy went back into the holding room where there were secure phones and other phones, and when the reading event was over, after the president stayed and, and then left the room, we went back. I went back with him into the holding room. And then everybody's working the phones, trying to figure out, okay, what happened in New York? What's the extent of the attack? How bad is the damage? How many people are hurt? What can the federal government do to help? And when did you realize that Secret Service was going to decide where you were going and it wasn't really your call? Well, it's never really our call. I mean, you always put yourself in the hands of the Secret Service, and that's frankly a wonderful feeling. You've contracted out your worries to the best in the world. Um, but, you know, it struck me that when we went into the gym, after the president worked the phones, he went into the gym to address the nation. And there were a group of people in that gym who were expecting a speech on education. Remember, in 2001, we didn't have the technology, the smartphones. There were many people in that room who had no idea that the two towers had been hit. So the president, in addressing the nation, announced into that room, and you could hear a gasp. But it struck me at the time that the Secret Service never would have allowed President Bush to go to that gym to make remarks if they thought we were under a threat in Sarasota. But after the two minutes' worth of remarks were over, they whisked us out of there, and they wanted to get on board Air Force One at that point. I think they started to reconsider and said the safest place for the president is in the sky. So you always are cool under pressure. The war starts. I never remember you rattled, always direct. But what was going on inside you? You know, Brian, looking back, I've got to say I learned something about myself, I guess, on that day and the days after. 
And that the worse things got, the calmer I became. And I I don't know why. I don't know how. I, I think they're just things that are in you, and you don't know what's in you until you're ultimately tested. But the worse things got, the calmer I became. And I've got to say, looking back on the 11th, the biggest surprise for me is how unemotional it was for everybody aboard Air Force One. And what I mean by that is people had a job to do. You didn't have time to wallow. You didn't have time to cry. You didn't have time to say, woe is me, woe is my country. Everybody had a responsibility aboard that plane, from the president to the Secret Service to the military to the staff, whose job was to support the president. Everybody was just steady and serious, solemn, no emotion. So, yeah, and, and I understand, too, at one point the president was, uh, I need to get back to Washington, right? They would take you to an undisclosed rotate, uh, location. Do you remember the communication with Dick Cheney? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I glued myself to the president's side for much of the day and just took notes on everything he didn't said. And he was advised strongly not to come back to Washington. When we got on board Air Force One, we knew three planes had gone down. Two hit the, the World Trade Center. In the motorcade on the way to Air Force One in Sarasota, we got the word of the plane that hit the Pentagon. We boarded Air Force One, and the first word the president got was that there are six aircraft in the sky that have not responded to the order to land. So we thought three planes hit their targets. There are six more to go. So we thought there were nine aircraft. When the plane went down in Pennsylvania, the first word we got aboard Air Force One was it went down near Camp David, which is 100 miles from Shanksville. But near Camp David. So now four down, five to go. So all the information we had was this is an ongoing, long attack. And the Secret Service and the military, of course, the last thing they wanted to do was get the president down in a known location, Andrews Air Force Base. And the president insisted on going back to Washington. It turned into a bit of a fight. Um, Andy Card ultimately said to the president, it's, it's not safe yet. It's not steady. It's, still, it's not steady still. And the president acquiesced. And it was a constant theme throughout the day where him wanting to get back. At one point, he said, the American people want to know where their dang president is. I don't want some damn tin horn terrorist keeping me out of Washington. But ultimately, he exceeded. And one little thing I learned years later, even if Bush, the commander in chief, had ordered Colonel Tillman, the Air Force One pilot, to go to Washington, Colonel Tillman legally would have refused the order. His job by statute and the Secret Service's job by statute is to protect the office of the president, to protect the president. And if he gave an order that would put him in what they view as harm's way by statute, they are not obligated to follow that order. And they wouldn't have. So here is President George W. Bush, September 11, 2001, when he finally got back to the White House. Cut 37. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. I was wondering, was that written on a yellow pad? I, I know you guys were jotting things down. How was that put together? What did you make sure to include and not include? 
Now, that was the third speech the president gave that day. He gave a two-minute speech from um, from the gym in Sarasota. He gave another two-minute speech from Barksdale Air Force Base to keep the nation informed best he could. And that was a formal speech from the Oval Office that night. That was started by the president on board Air Force One calling Karen Hughes and Mike Gerson, the speechwriters, and giving them the instructions of what he wanted to say. And then, as always, and they would polish it, put it into more prose, and then went back and forth, back and forth with the president as we flew back to Washington. And then he worked on it when he got back into the Oval Office uh, later that evening, shortly before that speech, which I believe was at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, that night. When, when, the, when did you guys actually see for yourselves uh, what happened that day? For example, this is how it sounded for us. I was on the air. Uh, and then I went down to was able to get a crew and go down to the World Trade Center as it was happening. Uh, a lot of this I heard originally. Then I just left. Cut 35. Overhead, and then all of a sudden I, I thought it sounded kind of lo- um, louder. Then I looked up, and all of a sudden it smashed right dead into the center of the World Trade Center. And there's more oh, explosions there's, oh, right now. Hold on, people are running. Wait, hold, so, on. hold on just a moment. We got an explosion inside. One of our producers said perhaps. A second plane was involved, and let's not let's not even speculate to that point. Not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God! Oh my God! That looks like a second plane. Has just I didn't hit. see a plane go in. That that just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming in from the side. So you have no idea right oh, now. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, oh my God! Oh. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew oh. right into the middle of it. Explosion! Oh my God! It's right in the middle of the building. So that's the live coverage. You were at a school at the time. What are your thoughts now? You, you know what's amazing is we didn't see the live coverage um, when the president was in the classroom, and then in the holding room there was no TV in that holding room. They later wheeled one in. Later, meaning five, ten minutes later, they wheeled one in. So we saw replays. And I'll never forget, there's a picture of Dan Bartlett pointing while we're in the holding room at the first plane hitting the first tower, the replay of it. And we all wheeled. And there's a picture of us wheeling around to see the TV. And you can just see the tension, just the the gripping realization of what that looked like in that still photograph. Um, And aboard Air Force One, one of the amazing things was how bad communications was. We didn't have satellite TV at that time. Our TV would pick up satellite and radio uh, signals from towers, antenna on the ground if the tower was tall enough and the signal was strong enough. So we could fly, get coverage when we flew over a good tower, and then the screen would fade to gray and fade out as we kept flying, and then it'd come back in. And there was no knowing when it would come in and out. Communications was bad. The phones cut off to the bunker underneath the White House repeatedly. The president was endlessly frustrated because he'd be talking to the vice president. He'd be talking to anybody. And the phone service would cut out aboard Air Force One on the day we needed it the most. So it's kind of amazing to think that everybody in the world is glued to their TVs watching it. And we were in probably the worst position to watch it of anybody. So I know the president... Bush, in retrospect, he said that Laura came up to him when he said, you know, Bin Laden wanted dead or alive. And President 
uh, and and the first lady went up to him and said, you know, I don't really think you should be saying that if I if I remember that story correct. Are there other things that you guys did in terms of messaging since you're a master at it and now you have businesses on the side helping others with it that you thought, man, that in retrospect we shouldn't have said that, or in retrospect, am I glad we said that? You, well, you know, on the dead or alive, it's so funny. He said that at the Pentagon, I believe it was on September 12th, the next day when he went to visit the Pentagon. And I thought I, I was never I, I hesitate to disagree with Mrs. Bush, but I thought it captured the mood of the country perfectly. That is what we wanted. We wanted bin Laden dead or alive. And he said it. And I think one of the things that really connected President Bush to the country and the reason the country rallied and the reason he had a 90 percent approval was his leadership was tone perfect. He spoke from the gut. He spoke from the heart. It wasn't a politician speech. It wasn't a diplo speech appealing to all sides and international interests. He spoke as a raw American expressing both grief and anger, backed up by everyone knowing he meant it when he said we were going to bring justice to those who did it. It wasn't an idle threat. We were going to go to war. And that summarized, Brian, where the country was on September 11th. This country was angry. This country was patriotic. This country demanded military action in response. And I thought Bush's tone really hit the mark, and especially on September 14th, that bullhorn moment, which was totally spontaneous, with his arm draped around Bob Beck with the fireman, when he said to those rescue workers who couldn't hear him, I hear you, and pretty soon the people who did this will hear from all of us. Um, Bush, I Bush can Bush. hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... You know, there are better speakers, Bill Clinton uh, and Barack Obama, but no one speaks from the heart like W, in my humble opinion, because he's got all the same thoughts. There's no arrogance there. He says what's on his mind, but in a disciplined way, because his family is so experienced in, in the ups and downs and the magnitude of what they say. And the reason why he thrives in those moments is because he's so authentic. Yeah. He has a good heart and a good gut. And one other moment that stood out to me is on September 13th in the Oval Office, he announced that he was going to go to New York the next day and to express his gratitude to the rescue workers and to try to bring comfort to the families of those whose loved ones are missing. And he answered questions about what we were going to do and bin Laden and some questions about the attack. And then one reporter, I think it was Patsy Wilson from Reuters, said to the president, how are you doing, Mr. President? And he started to tear up. You know, that was one question none of us ever thought of. We were too busy. Nobody wow. asked that question. And he said something along the lines of, I'm an emotional guy. I'm a loving guy, but I've got a job to do. And he barely kept it together. And then he walked out of the Oval into the little quarter next to it to collect himself. And it was amazing to me how that one question got to him and how he is. He is an emotional man, mm -hmm. but his leadership rallied the nation. Right. And the nation's rallying led him to a 90 percent approval. I mean, the two right. 
and, fed into each other. And he also had the right uh, press secretary at the time. Ari Fleischer, <laughs> uh, thanks so much. I love the reflection. I, I learned a lot, and I thought I knew everything. Thank you so much, Ari. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Always good to be with you. You got it. Back with your calls in a moment. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Talking a lot about 9-11, of course, Afghanistan, and the, the ridiculous speech the president made last night, trying to bait us into debating the constitutionality of his mandates and his fines. Now the politicians are telling us what medicine to take. Is that good with you? Chris, listen to WSBA in Pennsylvania. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brian. Um, I just wanted to say that as long as Joe Biden's in office, the term leader of the free world cannot be associated with the presidency. He decided to give up any idea of leadership in Afghanistan. And yesterday he decided that uh, he doesn't want this to be a free country. Um, He he said, forget your freedom. Yeah, the American people, it's it's up to us to lead the way. As Chinese and and communist influence grows in the world, it's up to people like you with the freedom of speech, pastors with freedom of religion, uh, holding on to our Second Amendment to maintain that that peaceful tension that we have now. Um, The American people are are the leaders of the free world now, not the president. Chris, thank you. Alex, WOKV in Jacksonville, Florida. Alex. Hey Brian, um, so I just think it's funny. You know, I was uh, I was six years old when those towers went down twenty something years ago these days, and uh, you know it it it's nerve wracking that three or four days ago, you know, the president had said we had gotten all the Americans out, and then all of a sudden, oh, there's a hundred and fifty some odd more just being held hostage. It, it, it's just a disgrace to the presidency. I've never seen anything so aggravating and so un-American as how this president has acted. We will not forget about that. Mark in Colorado. Mark. Hey, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a little confused. Uh, Pre-pandemic, the liberals were consistent in their message, my body, my choice. Has their position changed? (laughs) Not when it comes to abortion, but certainly when it comes to the vaccine. Yes, Howard Stern and Jimmy Kimmel now decide what vaccines we get. Fantastic. And if we don't, they say we shouldn't be allowed to go to the hospital. So should that person was basically saying the same thing. Thanks, Mark. By the way, if I, if you want to see me on stage, and I hope you do, go to briankilmeade.com. I'm in Charleston, Orlando, Ponte Vedra, and Clearwater. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. One day from 9-11, 20 years. Uh, we'll be discussing that this hour with uh, some great guests. Jim Gray standing by, the sports world, how it responded, call, and how they will respond. Call Rove, what it was like being by the president's side that day and throughout his first four years, six years. And Frank Siller, the Tunnel of the Towers Foundation, what happened with his brother running through the tunnel into the towers and not coming out in the T2T org of your chance to give to that fantastic organization. Uh, we will discuss uh, all that. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Can you explain a little bit more about why the White House in a statement is calling the Taliban business-like and professional? Well, we wanted to note that the Taliban was cooperative in facilitating the portrait of these American citizens and legal permanent residents from Hkaya. Uh, that's Hamid Karzai Airport, and it's pretty stunning to hear the description that way. 20 years later since the attacks, we have lost 
Uh, we've had four presidents. Who do you, do we really want to do this? Okay. Um, let's forget the big three. Uh, let's just go right to Jim Gray. Hey, Jim, uh, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Morning, Brian. How are you? Good, good. Um, congratulations on this serious show. You, Tom Brady, Larry Fitzgerald. Nice. It's called Let's Go. We've been, uh, we're on Sirius XM and it's a podcast available wherever you get the podcast. Let's go with Tom Brady and Larry Fitzgerald. So we're up and running. We've done a couple and, uh, going to do it every Monday night, uh, throughout the season. Uh, we've done a radio show together, uh, Tom and I for 12 years. This is Larry's 14th year and we've moved over to Sirius XM now. So, uh, or you can download it free to everybody, uh, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, okay, that should be great. I think Tom Brady's going to be happy on this week's edition after his uh, field goal. He's always happy. He's Tom Brady. <laughs> but he does like to lose, and he didn't last night. Hates to lose. No, hates to lose. He wasn't happy last night either. I'm sure he was happy with the victory, but uh, he'll see a lot of work there. Uh, the four turnovers are going to drive him nuts, all the penalties uh, at inopportune times. Um, there's a long way to go. Uh, a 17-game season now, Brian. It's a marathon, so they've uh, completed uh, – uh, one very small, short leg, uh, and he'll be happy that they won. Uh, he often says, we're not trying to be perfect, we're just trying to win the game, uh, and that's about what happened last night. They weren't perfect, but they did win the game. And, and Jim, of course, he had a full house really for the first time in a Tampa uniform. That was great. I mean, uh, you know, it was great to see all, all the folks out there, and, and it was football as we all remember it. Uh, hopefully we can put this COVID behind us with this variant uh, out there. It's a uh, really circulating and it's going to be it's going to be a tough season the NFL and the people around the NFL all tell me that uh, they think it's going to be more of a factor this year uh, even with the high vaccination rates because um, this variant uh, is seeing some breakthrough cases and it's uh, it's just it's just a very difficult circumstance for the country and hopefully uh, hopefully at some point we'll be able to uh, get it under control and 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 resume our lives but uh, Right now we can celebrate because that was a great way to start the season. Beating the Cowboys, unless you're a Cowboy fan, but still the Cowboys have some hope. They wanted to bet, they wanted to know that their quarterback. They wanted to know if they had a shot. They were going against the world champs, and they held their own. Jim Gray's with us. Talking to Goat is now on our paperback. You've probably seen the special on Fox Nation, which premiered. We had some commercials in it on Fox News, and Jim, of course, a Fox News contributor, uh, as well as doing everything else that he's doing. So, Jim, first off, just finished on the pandemic question. There are cities that are demanding to show vaccination before you go into the stadiums, right, in the NFL? Yes, sir. Um, how is that going over? Is that a lot of pressure on the ushers? You know, I don't know because we haven't seen that, but uh, we'll see it with the Raiders. And it's a great idea because, you know, look, it's better to be able to have people come to the game than not come to the game. And last year you couldn't go to the game in Las Vegas because uh, of the pandemic. So, you know, they were proactive in trying to get in front of this before anybody said, you can't have fans. They said, let's have vaccinations. And the Raiders, I believe, if you don't have a vaccination card, they'll vaccinate you right there, give you a test, and you can go in so that you can use your tickets. So uh, I just think that all of these cities are doing the best that they can trying to figure out how they can stop the spread of this. It's an indoor stadium uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, so... I don't know if it puts pressure on, you know, we saw what it did at the U.S. Open. There were long lines, uh, but the fans want to go. And so if this is one of the requirements of going, you have a choice. If you don't have a vaccine, you can't go to the game. If you have a vaccine, 
and you're willing to go through whatever it is that the guidelines are set in place, uh, then you're free to come and, 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 and enjoy the festivities. Going to any event is not a right, okay? It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to pay for the ticket, okay, so they can set the circumstances in which they want those folks to attend. It's really simple. No, I hear you. In fact, you know, if I own a team, I like to make my own decisions. The NFL will make theirs. Uh, you you wonder, uh, you know, when you mandate private businesses to do a certain thing, that's when the lawsuits come out, and was certainly that speech from last night. But, Jim, I want to talk about 9-11 20 years later. Where were you? I was in Denver. It was the opening of the brand-new Mile High Stadium. Uh, it was called Invesco Field. There was a Monday night opening game of the year. And my parents live in Denver, so I was at my parents' home uh, in Denver, and uh, I was – getting ready to go to the airport, and we had the Today Show on. And on came Katie Couric and, and Matt Lauer. And uh, I have chills right now because my dad was doing his exercises on the floor uh, at that time about 20 years ago. He was approximately a 72-year-old man and uh, had been in the Naval uh, Air Reserves uh, from World War II. And we sat there and watched this uh, in stunned silence. And um, I have chills talking about it right now. And I was in Denver, so I couldn't uh, leave uh, the city for whatever it was, those four or five days. Uh, I was with my parents, and I went down to the newsroom where I worked, KBTV. It's now KUSA, uh, and sat with my old, uh, my old boss, a man named Roger Ogden, who was a brilliant television executive and a dear friend, gave me my start, and uh, just kind of watched how he put together the whole day from, uh, from the uh, aspect of how it affected uh, those Denverites and those in Colorado. Uh, and the national story, and it was just, it was just an awful day. Um, just, just remember seeing the buildings come down, and uh, my dad and I and my mom were were sitting in the living room, and just knew that that had killed thousands of people, and uh, tears, and you know, it was just, it was just, it was just an awful, awful feeling. And even though we were, you know, several, uh, you know, a thousand miles away or whatever it is from Denver to New York and and Washington and Shanksville. Uh, Pennsylvania, it, just, it was just a, a horrible feeling that our country had been attacked and that uh, so many innocent people uh, were were needlessly affected. You know, so uh, fascinating is that uh, people are asking me all the time. We were on the air at the time, and then I went down there and covered it. Uh, we got a crew, got down there, did as many features as possible, tried to get on live and find everything in the chaos. But I was amazed when it was time to clean the whole thing up, try to find the survivors and put up the tents and feed the firefighters and the rescue workers and the experts and who knows who else was down there. You'd see Evander Holyfield uh, serving sandwiches, and you would see the Giants and Jets and Yankees and Mets down there. And you know what it's like, Jim, not for you personally, but for others. When you see a professional athlete in the mall or out there, you want to talk to them. It was the time in which nobody blinked. If it was Mike Piazza or Bobby Valentine sitting next to you, everyone was in it together. And in a lot of the stadiums in, in, um, in Shea then specifically – Bobby Valentine was actually leading and directing uh, all the food, and he was making sure everything got in and out correctly. So it was truly all hands on deck. When it was time to play baseball again, George W. Bush went back to New York, and he actually threw out the first pitch. Here's how it sounded. Cut 51. For tonight's ceremonial first pitch, and please welcome the President of the United States. And he threw a perfect strike. 
that resonated with you, Jim Gray? It did, and I uh, I hear that, and uh, I was there that evening, and 14 years later, and after numerous conversations, and that moment just just was one of the greatest moments uh, in 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 my life because there was a young president dealt an awful hand who went out there who just like FDR had said let's play baseball we're never going to stop mourning we're never going to forget those but let's try and have just a, a, a thin thin slice of 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 a little bit of normalcy and normalcy and there he went by himself virtually naked out uh, on that pitching mound 55,000 anthrax uh, pervasive another terrorist attack thought by all of those in charge uh, uh, that was going to be eminent, and he went out there and delivered a perfect strike. And so for 14 years, uh, I had tried to convince President Bush uh, to tell this story and to do a documentary. And then in one of the great honors of my life, Brian, uh, he finally said yes, and he let me produce that film uh, and executive produce that film, uh, a 30 for 30 for ESPN, and to uh, tell the story and uh, President Bush was just uh, uh, just great to uh, do that and to uh, trust me uh, and, and our group to uh, put that together, and they play it every year. And uh, he wanted to do it for two reasons, because it, it premiered in 2015, and he thought 14 years later that people were starting to forget about the effects of 9-11 and, and what it had done. So he wanted to preserve the memory of those who perished and, and keep the country thinking about, you know, what had happened. Also, he was doing an exhibition at the opening of his library of presidents in baseball. Uh, so he thought that uh, having the film, uh, which can live now forever and, and is played there all the time, and ESPN plays it all the time, it's online as well, uh, would just serve as a memory. And it was just a tremendous, courageous, uh, unbelievable moment. That and Muhammad Ali lighting the torch uh, in Atlanta for the Olympics in 1996 are the two greatest sports moments that I have ever witnessed. And neither of those folks had anything to do with the actual game. Interesting uh, and fascinating that you did that because you had to be an entrepreneur and a salesperson to get everybody involved and then get ESPN to do it and then pull it off. And it just goes to show you, even if you're at the highest part, uh, the highest end of your career, you still got to work uh, to get things done because nothing was handed to you. They didn't say, Jim, I need you to host something. Jim, <laughs> Jim Gray said, I need to do something. So meanwhile, at, a, at another game that stands out for me as well uh, as just pure sports was the Mets, who had gone to the World Series and were underachieving this year, and people wonder, can they get into gear? The 9-11 attacks happened, and the Mets went on a run, mainly because of this moment, trailing Atlanta in the ninth, Mike Piazza at the plate, Cut 49. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead 3-2. It meant so much. I mean, he's going to be featured on the Fox broadcast on Saturday. Can you explain to people who might not have been alive or remember or a baseball fan why that sends chills in just one of 162 games? Well, because of the moment and the time that we were in. And, you know, we often look to sports, and Condoleezza Rice says this in, in First Pitch. Um, and I have a chapter on First Pitch uh, in, in the book 
talking to goats and thanks for mentioning that uh, it just came out in paper book and, and you were a big help on that with the special and so forth but sports has a way of bringing us together and uniting us in times of celebration and also in times where we're all looking to come together and coalesce because events outside of the sports world uh, have just brought us to this place where there's despair and so um, she said it so magnificently and so beautifully, and I'm paraphrasing it and butchering it, not doing anywhere near as well as, as, as Dr. Rice does. But the fact that that home run and those moments resonate with people is because we needed that lift, and yep. we look to athletes, and we look to uh, leaders and, and people in, in those types of positions, and we can glean some sort of, of internal um, – that internal mechanism that allows us to persevere and we see it through others and we can inspire ourselves. And I think that is why moments like that are moments that we recall with not only such fondness, but bring us inspiration and, and admiration. Jim Gray, uh, talking to goats now at our paperback, you got to get it the forward by Tom Brady, his show on Sirius with Tom Brady and uh, a guy that's going to have a bright future when he finally decides to be done. Larry Fitzgerald, it's on Sirius. Uh, Jim, uh, that's, uh, the name of it is Let's Go, and it's every Monday at uh, 6 o'clock. Uh, or you can get it on Apple Podcasts. Jim, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Brian, thanks for having me. All Talk right. to you soon. I hope to see you soon. Absolutely. When we come back, your turn. one 408 We'll talk about that. The president's, I think, wildly inappropriate speech last night where he attacked the unvaccinated as if they're worse than the Taliban. And then we'll talk about Afghanistan. We got 20 people out yesterday. We have hundreds, maybe thousands left behind enemy lines. Is this still America? Back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. What's the legacy of the entire war on terror? And I think there's two pieces to it. One is we have protected the homeland since 9-11. There hasn't been another 9-11. We all, we all worked very hard to make sure that that didn't happen. That's fantastic. That's success, right? We won that war. But at the same time, I think we've weakened America a little bit. Mm. Because for those 20 years that we were fighting a counterterrorism war and a counterinsurgency war, the Russians and the Chinese were catching up to us conventionally. Mm. And some of the things we did post 9-11, the war in Iraq, for example, caused political division here at home, right, that we're still paying for. No kidding. Uh, that is 100% true. Mike Morrell, former acting director of the CIA, presidential briefer for Obama and President Bush, with President Bush the day of the attacks. He also understood the gravity and, and the challenge of continuing to beat back Islamic extremists, extremism, al-Qaeda, ISIS, al-Shabaab, all the sects there. They all think the, uh, the thing to do would be hit America. That is the gold standard, and they don't mind killing themselves in the process. So that is the challenge, and he understands that. And we are immeasurably less safe right now because of what Joe Biden just did over the last three weeks, let alone the, the, the pale of depression he caused with veterans who gave so much their life and their limb and their— uh, there's some invisible wounds because of decisions he's made. Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, on the chances of another attack, cut three. The whole community is kind of watching to see what happens uh, and whether or not al-Qaeda 
uh, has the ability to uh, to regenerate uh, in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we put the Taliban on notice that uh, that we expect for them to not allow that to happen. Okay, uh, think about this: we leave the country, we beg them to let us get our citizens out of the country. And we put them on notice after they take the country. They are celebrating 9-11 thanks to him, Joe Biden especially, but Secretary of Defense for not standing up and convincing him, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for not letting him know or letting him know and his stubbornness had this come off the way it did and the State Department being as inept as they are. Now we're going to sit back and watch to see if al-Qaeda will reconstitute. That is really not the posture I heard wins the war on terror. When we come back, Carl Rove on that very question and what he was doing 20 years ago today. And we'll compare four presidents and how they handled the war on terror, which has not stopped, even though Joe Biden would like it to. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, can you look out your window right now? Yeah. Can you can you see God about four thousand feet, about five east of the airport right now? Looks like he's yeah, I see him. You see God? Look, is he descending for the building also? He's descending really quick too. Yeah. Well, that's twenty five hundred feet now. He just dropped eight hundred feet in like a, like one one sweep. That's that's another situation. Who, what kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow. Another one just hit the worst side. Man, I've never heard that before. That's air traffic control talking to each other because they can't believe on a beautiful sunny day. It looks like this plane was going so low and they're not listening. It turns out they were hijacked and the death and destruction we're still paying for and try to process even today. What was it like if you were a deputy chief of staff and senior advisor to President George W. Bush? Help him get elected. Uh, finally take office. Nine months later, you're in the middle of the worst terror attack since Pearl Harbor. That person is Carl Rove, and he joins us now. Carl, what are your thoughts when you hear that? Well, it's um, extraordinary. It shows the enemy that we faced then and the enemy we still face today willing to kill themselves as long as it brought about the destruction of uh, American lives and American symbols of uh, greatness. Do you remember even talk, uh, a lot of talk about terrorism, 9-11, al-Qaeda? I mean, it wasn't in any of the debates with Al Gore. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't on the tip of everyone's tongue. Do you remember on your things to-do list where that was? Well, I remember that in the debate prep, we talked about, you know, remember in early October of 20 or in October of 20 of 2000, uh, the attack on the USS Cole. So there was some discussion in the campaign about how to handle that if it came up as an issue. But no, I mean, we, you know, America in retrospect, we we now know that Al Qaeda attacked us five times before 9-11. And we didn't see it for what it was, which was a relentless, continuing threat to the American homeland. Uh, and after 9-11, uh, President Bush was transformed from a guy focused on education reform and welfare reform and invigorating uh, faith and in, in nonprofit groups to confront suffering in our country to a wartime president. And he understood that his number one responsibility was to keep America safe and to bring to justice those who had attacked America and to uh, project power uh, around the world to keep keep uh, similar attacks from happening again. So here was, uh, we remember 9-11, 
and that is uh, 20 years tomorrow. Uh, how uh, how vivid were the threats? How real were the threats afterwards? Remember about anthrax? Remember the uh, the sniper, the guy shooting out of his trunk of his car, terrorizing the West Coast? How real were the threat? The follow up threats. Well, you, you mentioned uh, a couple, uh, but there were a lot. I mean, the, the intelligence chatter was high. Concerns were high. Uh, the intelligence community um, picked up threads that gave us a sense that there were very real threats against the homeland. Those plots were, by and large, thwarted. Uh, someday the, 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 the story can be told, but America was kept safe by the by the action of our intelligence and uh, community and our military and our diplomats and uh, our law enforcement who uh, took took these threats and uh, dealt with them. And, uh, you know, we had the, the underwear bomber who got on the plane, but, but there were other plots that were foiled by, you know, drone attacks and special operators and uh, our intelligence community removing actors who were in the process of uh, of getting ready to attack the American homeland uh, or American interests abroad or our allies. Remember the shoe bomber, too? That's where we take our shoes off if you're not TSA approved. Uh, right, so right. we finally got on the front foot and it started October 7th, cut 39. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Do you remember the, th- the feeling in the White House when you finally got a chance to attack those who attacked us? Yes, I, I remember it well. And you, uh, apropos the question you just asked, those targets, many of those targets were chosen because they were key links, if you will, in, uh, in additional attacks on the United States. And, um, you know, I, I think about that a lot. I thought of a lot about that in the last few days because, for example, you remember between September 11th and October 7th, we demanded that the Taliban regime in Afghanistan turn over Osama bin Laden or suffer the consequences, that those who harbor terrorists and give them sanctuary are, are, will be treated just like the terrorists themselves. And the foreign minister of the Taliban told the United States to go pound sand. He has just been named the acting prime minister of the new regime of of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, 22 members of the government, many of them were declared terrorists by the United Nations in in January and February of 2001, even before 9-11. And many of them played active roles in the effort to shelter Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and uh, and to attack and kill Americans and uh, I, you know I, I think about I think about all the sacrifices and all the commitment and all the grit and determination and courage and bravery of Americans who won the war against terror in Afghanistan, an important front in that war, and then saw it saw their great gains surrendered needlessly uh, in the last month by President Biden. Uh- Unbelievably, you didn't overstate anything. You just stated the fact, and you got the Taliban five, four of which have higher up positions. The guy in charge of intelligence is uh, his name is Hakani. There's another Hakani in the cabinet. Mullah Omar's son and brother is in the cabinet. They're all back, but the big difference, Carl, they have our stuff. 
between 50 yeah. and 85 billion worth of American hardware. And the big difference, yeah. we rebuilt our embassy. They are going to be celebrating nine, celebrating 9-11 in our embassy. What does that do yeah. for you since you live this? Yeah, well, it makes me angry. This is needless. This was unnecessary. Our combat role had ended in Afghanistan in 2015. Before that awful afternoon in Kabul at the airport, our last military death was in February of 2020. We, we were not engaged in ground combat. We were providing intelligence gathering and training and support and, if need be, air power from Bagram, which, which kept the Taliban in check. They knew that if they made a move on a provincial capital, we and the Afghans would rain hell from above uh, and there was nothing they could do about it. And then we gave it away. Imagine what the world would look like, Brian, if 20 years after the end of World War II, or even 20 years after the beginning of World War uh, World War II, uh, either Dwight Eisenhower in 59 or Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1945, excuse me, 1965, said, you know what, let's bring American troops home from Europe. Europe would be now dominated by Soviet communism. What, what would have happened if Richard Nixon – in July of 1973, said, you know, it's been 20 years since we stopped the, the hostilities in Korea. We don't have a peace treaty, but you know what? Let's bring home the troops. Does anybody think the Kim regime in North Korea would not have gobbled up South Korea and the world would look differently? And we did that. We, we, we stood. We stood on the wall and said no. And we, we put American troops in, and today we have 110,000 American troops in Europe, in Japan, and Korea. And what is it? It's in our interest to do so. The world is a better place. We have allies and friends and trading partners who buy American goods and services and share our values. And, 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 and what, what did we do in Afghanistan? We took nearly 40 million people, two-thirds of whom are under the age of 25. We gave them 20 years in which their country was striving to be better, more modern, allowing women to be educated and work, allow people to have freedom of conscience and basic human rights. And we gave them now to the control of barbarians who will slaughter anybody who had anything to do with supporting America in this last 20 years. But yesterday, here's the statement from... A NSC spokesperson, Emily Horn, the Taliban have been cooperative in facilitating the departure of American citizens and lawful uh, lawful permanent residents on charter flights. They have shown flexibility and they have been businesslike and professional in dealings with our effort. And yeah, at the same yeah. time, I'm watching let, let, video of them whipping women in the street for protesting. And and I'm seeing pictures of journalists whose skin was rubbed raw by the blows they got hours before for covering it. We're watching this violence. How do you make a statement like that, Carl? You are in the inner sanctums of government. Yeah, look, uh, I, I, these people are either delusional or more likely cynical. And I think the cynicism is they think if we stop talking about Afghanistan, like they're telling the press this, we're, the president's no longer going to speak about Afghanistan. It's only going to be lesser officials, primarily at the State Department. The American people are going to forget about this, and we're going to pass the American Jobs Plan, $3.5 trillion new of, of new welfare benefits and free things for Americans. And by 2022 midterms, they will have forgotten Afghanistan, and they will be showering the Democrats with votes because we gave them bread and circuses. But you know what? Professional and businesslike. Yeah, they're businesslike and professional. I have a friend who was in and out of Afghanistan a lot. He had many interpreters who worked with he and his team in Afghanistan. One of those interpreters 
was taken in it in it lived outside of Kabul, was taken by the Taliban a few weeks ago. They summoned his family and witnesses. They tortured him and murdered him in front of his family and then cut off his arms and then systematically killed every single member of his family except the 10 year old daughter who was given to an to a Taliban warrior as a as an arranged bride. And then the witnesses were dismissed. You're right. They are professional and they are businesslike and their business is murdering people, Americans and people who stood with America in the fight against the war on terror. I know you don't speak for President Bush, but this must really uh, this must really hit home. It must be really agonizing since you remember the potting and planning and the power given to the Pentagon to do what they do best. That that power has been taken away, but they're forced to deal with the aftermath. Well, you talked about Bagram. Think about this. President Biden said, here's how many troops you've got. The Pentagon said, Mr. President, that's not enough to hold Bagram, hold the Kabul airport, and be able to secure uh, Kabul enough to move Americans out. And Biden says, I don't care. Here's how many troops you've got. You figure out what's the number one priority. And the number one priority was hold the Kabul airport. But we gave up Bagram needlessly. We gave up the whole mission in Afghanistan needlessly. And we're going to regret this day. And it may not be today. It may not be next week. It may not be a year from now. But even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, said that the fall of Afghanistan means that within 12 months, 24 months, or 36 months, there will be a resurgence of terrorism. And when that moment comes, those smart people who occupy the Biden administration, like the woman you just quoted, are going to regret having said those things. And most important of all, the president of the United States will regret having taken a needless surrender, offering up a needless surrender in a war that we had largely won. No question. Do you fault? You know how this works. Do you fault the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the secretary of defense for being uh, for being so compliant? I mean, for keep it for wanting to hold their jobs. I know they're not. To, they're supposed to serve at the pleasure of the president. But. At the same time, the president's saying, this is what the intelligence said. This is what my Defense Department told me. So he's pushing it yeah. back on them. Yeah, well, you notice they're pushing back on him. I mean, General Milley went out and said 12 months, 24 months, 36 months after the president basically said, you know, in Texas, we got a phrase, me no Alamo. I wasn't at the Alamo. The president said, no, it's not my fault. Me no Alamo. It's not I, I wasn't at the Alamo. You you know, you it's your fault, not mine. I. Uh, you know, you. It, but it, ultimately, the responsibility is his. Look, our military is under civilian control. They report to the Secretary of Defense, who's a member of the president's cabinet, and the president is the commander in chief under our Constitution. So he says, "Do it." They got to do it or resign. I wish I'd seen a few more resignations. Carl Rove, thanks so much for your reflections and for analyzing at the moment. Appreciate it, Carl. Yes, all the best. All right. When we come back, Frank Siller, Stephen Siller ran through those tunnels, went into the towers and never came out. They formed the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. He had the Never Forget Walk, uh, raising additional money. I want you to do that, too. But get Frank's story 20 years since uh, 20 years in one day or 19 years and 364 days since his brother lost his life. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, welcome back, everyone. It's my privilege to bring in Frank Siller, chairman and CEO of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Go to T2T.org right now and give to a foundation that will do the most for your money. 
Talented Towers. Well, uh, Frank started it in honor of his brother, Stephen Siller, who lost his life one, uh, 20 years and 364 days ago. Frank started his Never Forget Walk on August 1st. Tomorrow he finishes. He started the Pentagon, went to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and then to the World Trade Center. We'll finish up uh, tomorrow. Frank, congratulations on pulling this off. What are your thoughts as you're now in the final backstretch? Well, right now I'm in Squad 1 in Brooklyn. Uh, it's Park Slope in Brooklyn. That's where my brother was uh, working the night shift on September 10th when he was finished in the early morning of September 11th uh, when he made that fateful decision that he's going to drive back at his five gear uh, and drive to the mouth of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. So I'm here with his, uh, his uh, buddies, uh, some guys that he worked with, and uh, it's very emotional uh, seeing his name on the wall along with 11 other great heroes. And uh, it's a great price that was paid 20 years ago, Brian. A great price. Uh, we lost 2,977 Americans, but uh, 343 firefighters and 60 police officers and others gave their life that day because they were rescuing people. The largest rescue mission ever uh, on American soil, and uh, over 20,000 people uh, w- were saved. So. Uh, my brother was one of those heroes that were saving people, so I couldn't be more proud. You've been raising money for great causes, first responders, military men and women. You get there, pay off their mortgages, do what you can to rebuild their lives. Frank, there's a concert this weekend, and there's a VIP opportunity, isn't there? Well, yeah, it's a VIP opportunity, but it's a VIP opportunity for a firefighter or a police officer. And you go to Tunnel to Towers, excuse me, you go to T2T.org. And donate a thousand dollars, and you will pay for uh, someone to go to this VIP uh, experience and concert for a firefighter or, or, or police officer. And uh, they have uh, Lee Bryce. Uh, Lee Bryce uh, did this for the Tulsa Towers Foundation. Uh, Zach Zach Brown, uh, Darius Rucker, and others uh, that will be playing, performing there uh, tomorrow night on on 9-11. I want to get as many uh, cops and firefighters there as possible, and they want to raise money for the foundation. So it's a beautiful thing all all around. Because because they got to get it. You can't meet everybody, but you get the VIP opportunity. You'll give a chance for the firefighters to meet these great artists who are sacrificing at their own free time to give out, uh, to get everyone aware of this concert on this this sacred day. Do you think people uh, remember, Frank, after walking all the miles, talking to everybody that you talked to? I am uh, very optimistic uh, of everything that I saw and the people that were honking their horns and getting out of their cars and and joining me on on the walk and the unbelievable amount of uh, parades that were happening and uh, just walking through Staten Island yesterday was crazy, uh, very uh, enthusiastic people just loving uh, America and certainly going through Brooklyn today. So. I am. I feel cautiously optimistic that the youth of America is going to find out what happened 20 years ago. But we will never let our guards down at the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We will always make sure our first part of our mission is is to do good. And look, you know, we take care of Gold Star families. And tomorrow, I will be talking to the widow who has lost her husband, one of the 13 great Americans wow. we just lost in Afghanistan. And- And, Frank, we're up against it now. Frank Siller, go to T2T.org and send a firefighter to this concert this weekend. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice.
Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're there 24 hours since the 9-11 attacks, a little bit uh, below that, 22 hours since it happened, depending on where you are, location. Mike Morell will join us. He was uh, with the President of the United States, Bush, uh, George Bush, 43 at the time of the attack, stayed on through the Obama administration just recently, retired a few years ago, wrote a great book, former CIA uh, former CIA acting chief and deputy chief for, uh, for years, President uh, Daily Briefer. He reflects on that day, the Al-Qaeda threat, how it's metastasized and how much danger we're in today. In fact, you'll hear what he said today on another channel, which really employs him full time. And Shannon Bream, in a matter of moments, uh, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. 9-11, 20 years later, since the attacks that went through four presidents, how did each of them handle it? How do you think this one's doing? Has the country forgotten about 9-11 and gone back to 9-10-01 mentality? Well, regardless, I will tell you for certain, the terrorists haven't. Number two. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated. Nice. What a great hostile, confrontational, divisive speech. Did you see it last night? That's how I summarized President Biden's six-point COVID plan that he announced on Thursday. He wants to fight Republican governors, mock unvaccinated Americans, and punish Americans uh, and punish everybody who don't comply because he doesn't want to talk about the border and he doesn't want to talk about this. Number one. Can you explain a little bit more about why the White House in a statement is calling the Taliban business-like and professional? Well, we wanted to note that the Taliban was cooperative in facilitating the portrait of these American citizens and legal permanent residents from HKIA. <laughs> nice try. President Biden attempts to distract from his titanic, catastrophic, irresponsible evacuation from Afghanistan. It won't work. Americans still left behind. The terror threat grows daily. Our superpower profile takes a hit globally. But guess who they are indeed praising as professional? The Taliban. Shannon Bream, I know you covered this last night on Fox News at night, uh, and we know that you've been filling in all over the channel. Uh, first off, what do you think 20 years ago, where were you on 9-11? You know, I was actually packing uh, to move to uh, from Tampa, Florida, to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I actually, my best friend um, was very pregnant at the time and said, you know, once this all started happening, it was so crazy and anxiety-inducing as we're watching this. Um, she said, can you run me to the doctor for my visit today? I don't want to go by myself. And so I took her. And when I got there and the doctor examined her, um, came out into the hallway and said to me, did you bring her here? And I said, yeah. She said, she's got to go to the hospital right now. She's eight centimeters. And if you've had a baby uh, or know someone you love who's had a baby, you know that's you got to get to the hospital. And so there she was in labor during 9-11 when the world seemed completely chaotic. 
Um, there were scores of women there in the maternity ward because uh, the doctors told us when big urgent things happen, they often see people go into labor, like hurricanes in Florida obviously is a big thing, um, but they had no room for her to have this baby. And so she's in there with a group of people saying, please don't let me have my baby with 10 other people in this room. They finally at the last minute were able to get her into an operating room to have her baby. And uh, that's the day that Megan came into the world. They had been debating about a middle name and they decided to give her the middle name Hope that day because as bad as it was, they just wanted um, you know, to send a message that um, the world wasn't over and that there would be good things to come. And so it is my goddaughter's actual birthday. And so a mix of emotions on that day, but so glad that she did offer that little bit of hope by coming into the world. Uh, that is uh, fascinating. Uh, so that's a great personal story. So then when we come here, you're pretty convinced now that we know the war on terror is not over 20 years later, right? Mm-mm. Not even close. And a lot of people would say, um, and I'm no military expert, that, but a lot of these threats have metastasized. I mean, frankly, um, some of these groups are so uh, archaic in their thinking and their beliefs and the way they operate, but they're very savvy with technology and using that to their advantage. And um, that means that our guys and gals who work on this 24-7 have got to be right all the time. And the bad guys only have to slip in here and there um, to be able to wreak havoc. So I don't envy our intel and our military. I mean, they, what they do is um, heroic and uh, endless. Uh, yeah, uh, and what we just witnessed over the last two weeks is uh, beyond moronic and dangerous. Yesterday, we got 10 American citizens out and I think 11 with green cards. They said they asked more, but the others didn't want to come. Shannon, I don't know. Why do you think they wouldn't want to come? They didn't want to miss fall in Afghanistan? <laughs> You know, what I keep hearing from folks on the ground, and all of us have back-channel, you know, former special ops and veterans who are working on this stuff that tell us what they're seeing on the ground. And what I hear from them is, you know, you hear this language about, well, Americans who don't want to leave or people who aren't ready to leave. It's because they're not allowed to bring a spouse or a child or family with them. It's not like they cannot wait to stay, as you said, and enjoy fall in Afghanistan. It's that they are torn. They have a right to come to the U.S., but they're being told their dependents, in many cases, cannot come with them. No decent human being is going to leave those their family and the people they love and their spouse and kids behind. So we've got to figure out this framework because we keep hearing stories about people ready to go, people desperate to go, can't get clearance from the State Department. State Department says we can't let in people we haven't we haven't vetted, but yet we know over 100,000 people have come here and not all been fully vetted. So, um, yeah, it feels like the execution of this plan could have been a little bit better. Wow, that is so measured. I think it could have been planned, <laughs> period. Uh, and the way with the yeah. embarrassment we feel globally, the way our profile has taken a hit uh, internationally, is just you can't even put into words. Meanwhile, I was talking to General Keene today on television and in the break, and he told me that now these private groups that know where to find the SIVs and the Americans are going to get the support of the Pentagon, but they so far the state is still taking the lead. We're never going to get our people out, and they think there are not 100, but hundreds mm-hmm. that still need to get out, Shannon. No one got out outside Kabul. Well, and that's not just Republicans beating up on the president saying that. I mean, you've got Democrats like Ro Khanna. You've got, um, you know, a congressman saying we have hundreds of requests just in our office that we're trying to figure out and process and help these people in any way that we can. 
So I'm not sure that we're getting uh, an accurate full accounting of what we know about Americans or, you know, their dependents who are still there and need to get out. Um, it's been an interesting thing in that there's been bipartisan calls um, for this administration to get its act together. Many of these men and women um, who serve in Congress are veterans. Regardless of whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they are saying publicly, this is a disaster. We had a guy on last night who was um, has done multiple tours of duty in Afghanistan, a veteran who has now um, been in the region trying to help process people out. And um, these men and women are horrified. He said to me, I've never been so ashamed to be an American in the sense that I think our administration is failing people, but never been more proud of our military, of our former vets and people on the ground, this network of individual Americans. He says, I've never been prouder to be an American as an individual because we're doing the job the best that we can. Um, but like you said, around the world, how can we expect partners to partner with us and trust us when they watch this unfolding? So uh, so the president of the United States uh, decides to take a, make a speech and not answer questions about Afghanistan, talk about Americans left behind, not talk about the Politico story that talked about how his staff cringes when he's on television to the point where they hit mute. That's a Politico story. And mm-hmm. they, they say they cringe when he takes questions because he makes so many major uh, mistakes saying 90 percent of the people got out, they claim, instead of 98, which might not be true. Number two, saying al-Qaeda was not in Iraq anymore, which we know is not true. Our troops are not in Syria anymore, which we know is not true. And uh, and that the Taliban are going to cooperate. And the, excuse me, the Taliban uh, are not going to take over the country. It's not inevitable. We know that that was indeed the case. So those are the type of things that make him cringe. That's why he probably didn't take questions, but we're all the worse for it. Listen to what he did just say when it comes to our freedom and vaccines. Cut 14. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you, the people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. So it's not about freedom. It's a great thing to tell the American people. I love that message. Remember when he said this December 4th, cut 17. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. I'll do everything in my power as the president of the United States to encourage people to do the right thing. Now he's telling businesses mandated over 100. Now he's telling people fine people if they're at an airport and not wearing a mask. And now he's demanding that people get vaccinated if you work for the federal government, work in the military on down. What's going on here, Shannon? Well, I mean, the CDC director, Dr. Walensky, said the same thing uh, when she was kind of pressed on it, like, what's this talk of a federal mandate? No, we would never do that. That's not something we would do. And you can say that and play the semantics of, well, there's not a federal mandate. But when the Department of Labor has the ability to come in and fine an employer by thousands of dollars per violation if they don't get with the program, what does that equate to? Um, I think that in a, a courtroom, that would be a very interesting question for judges who are being objective. Um, the state can't force others to become state actors on its behalf um, to do something it cannot itself do. So I think that there are going to be a lot of legal challenges, um, and I predict some of them will be successful on this. 
uh, point because um, if it's so coercive that private employers don't feel that they can be free of being penalized and put out of business uh, over doing this, um, then I don't think that the, that the White House can still claim there's not a quote-unquote federal mandate. Maybe not technically, but certainly a lot of employers are going to feel that way. Um, the president spent a lot of time, too, uh, you know, blaming the unvaccinated yep. and, yes. and saying our patience is wearing thin. That's his Who's, quote from him. Um, he said we have this great economic recovery. We can't let the unvaccinated undo it. So I think if he was trying to win people over, that very heavy-handed shaming of them publicly was probably not very successful. Oh, wow. You were being so diplomatic today. It is absolutely, to me, un-American. <laughs> specialty. Right. Mike Pence said this to us in his first interview, really, since he left office. The president's uh, speech yesterday was unlike anything I'd ever heard from an American president. I mean, to have the president of the United States uh, say that uh, that uh, he's been patient, but his patience is wearing thin. That's not how the American people uh, expect to be spoken to by our elected leaders. To say that it's not about freedom, it's exactly about freedom. America is about freedom and the ability to make the best decision for your family, for your business. And now to have a president not just scolding the American people, but scolding governors around the country, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just not the American way. I've never seen him so incensed as, you know, Mike Pence is so measured. Uh, he was really emotional today. Yeah, and, and listen, I think the Democrats are having to make the calculation in the back of their mind. Listen, 2022, we're a year away from another round of elections, uh, but people will remember this stuff. Business owners will remember this stuff. And so when you tell the American people that the last guy was mm-hmm. a dictator um, and that this guy is now going to make all these rules that people feel like they have no way to fight back against um, and basic American freedoms, you know, I think having the conversation with somebody about what the vaccine means for them, their family, their workplace, people they care about, that's much more constructive than this kind of thing, saying we're going to drop the hammer on all of these people, and basically we think they're idiots. When I think we all know, I personally do multiple people who are vaccinated who have had breakthrough infections, some of them have been very serious. One of our friends, fully vaccinated, died from COVID. So the reality is people know that and experience that. So if you tell them the vaccine is the only way out and you don't offer any part of the conversation about natural immunity and people who have had COVID, who many studies show are as well-equipped, if not better than the vaccinated, um, you just insult a lot of people in the process, and you don't bring them over to your side. You don't, but nobody wants, since you brought up politics, he wants to spar with Abbott. He wants to spar with DeSantis. He wants people to take corners, and he desperately does not want to talk about the border. Does, do you know that 30% of the illegals are turning down the vaccine and that 20% are testing positive? Why they're getting a free vaccine, I guess we're looking to protect ourselves. But as long as you leave that border open, wide open, as long as you don't build the wall and enforce the remain in Mexico and you have a system where you actually detain people, you can't tell me you're serious about this. This is all a distraction because what happened in Afghanistan isn't messy. It may be the biggest blunder in American military history. Yeah, and voters will not forget that. I hope Americans not. Americans who, who have members of their family who have served in the military, they've served themselves. 
Um, there is a great compassion and fury on behalf of uh, the military community by average Americans. They are not going to forget that. But listen, you know our folks are down there on the border all the time, uh, meaning you know members of our team who are covering this. Um, the mainstream media, though, doesn't talk about it, and it, it gives the perception as if that's cleared up down there and nothing's happening. We know the, that the opposite is actually true. And, and again, this is something we hear from a bipartisan group of lawmakers, mayors, sheriffs, all kinds of people down there around the border who say it's a disaster. We're begging the president, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, to help us. It has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. All right, Chad and Bream, you, you keep getting better. I don't know how you do it. Uh, we'll see you tonight at 11. <laughs> Are you doing anything else today? You know what? I am going to an afternoon wedding. You know, what? people who didn't get to get married last year, everybody's just cramming in the weddings wherever they can. So, uh, hey, a Friday afternoon wedding, these kids want to get married, we're going to see them do it. Fantastic. Uh, I'm sorry I can't go, uh, but I'll have well, to stay. I, I'm working. Well, you were my initial plus one, but since you yeah. can't, I'm taking Mr. Bream. <laughs> you got to take. I. You know what? It's better that way. Yeah. Thank you is. so much, Shannon. All right, Shannon Bream, tonight at 11. By the way, if you want to see me in person, if you can't get enough of me or you want to see what it's like I look like in person, uh, I hope you do. Go to briankillme.com. I want you to get tickets to the President and Freedom Fighter Tour, Charleston, West Virginia, on the 7th of November, then Ponte Vedra, Florida, on December 3rd, on November 21st, Orlando, Clearwater, Florida, uh, December 4th. briankillme.com. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You think that it's possible that Al-Qaeda could reemerge? Yes, and whether that happens depends entirely on us. So I told President Bush on 9-11 that I was highly confident that what just happened um, was the result of bin Laden and Mm al-Qaeda. I'm here to tell you today that I am highly confident that the Taliban will allow al-Qaeda to have safe haven in Afghanistan, and al-Qaeda will want to reconstitute. So the question is, will we allow that? Will we have the intelligence capabilities to watch them, to see what they're doing, um, look at their plans and intentions, look at their capabilities, and then will we have the military capability to go in there and degrade them um, if we need to? And will we have the will to do that? Um, If we do that, they won't be a threat. If we don't, They could be a threat within 12 months. That is Mike Morrell on CBS, and they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the fact that uh, the the former deputy director of the CIA for years came up the ranks. They don't want to hear him say the threat has never been greater. Leaving the Afghanistan the way we we did makes us more vulnerable. And the message he sent makes us look weak. And the chance of al-Qaeda being welcomed by... The Taliban, it's not even a chance. It's already happened. You have the Akani network affiliated directly with Al-Qaeda in the cabinet. When we come back, more with Mike Morrell. My interview with him. And keep in mind, we do have a special coming up on 9-11. You'll be, have a chance to hear that, hopefully, in your local affiliate and be able to get it streaming and find out more on, um, on foxnews.com. They, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, 
despicable acts of terror. That's a little of the speech that George W. Bush gave as president of the United States after the 9-11 attacks. We're trying to all process at the time. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Mike Morrell? He was a CIA, a CIA analyst at the time, served as the president's daily briefer uh, under George W. Bush, including other presidents in the future. Uh, that morning of 9-11, he was with the president as the president was speaking and reading as he was pushing to be the education president at a grammar school. Your perspective with your knowledge of intelligence but yet with the president at his side, having to disseminate what you were seeing and hearing, uh, I can't imagine talking to someone more insightful. What were you thinking when Andy Card whispered in President Bush's ear, did he tell you first? Did you know first? Um, so, 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 Brian, I had heard about the first plane hitting um, on the, in the motorcade on the way from um, where the president had spent the evening um, to um, Booker Elementary School, um, I heard about the first plane. And like many people, I thought it was, you know, small plane, bad weather in New York. Um, and so I thought it was an accident. Um, when we got to the school, I walked into um, the room where the president's staff was was waiting for him. He was already in with the kids. And there, there was a TV in there. And, of course, it was on on the coverage of the first plane hitting. And that's when the second plane hit. And I knew instantly, instantly, I knew that not only was this a terrorist attack, but this was Al Qaeda and this was bin Laden. Because Mike, not only were you at the, you know, at the hub of all intelligence coming in, you were the one giving it to the president in digestible way. And you'd have to put up with this barrage of follow-up questions. So you were impeccably prepared for it. And were you thinking about that so-called August briefing when evidently on that on the presidential day brief it said bin Laden determined to attack here at home? Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the spring and summer of 2001 saw a ton, a torrent of threat reporting talking about spectacular attacks, history-changing attacks, multiple simultaneous attacks. But it was frustratingly lacking in detail on when, where, and how. And so whenever the president would read one of these pieces that I showed to him or whenever I talked to him about these threats, he would always ask, right, is there any evidence that the attack could be here? And George Tennant and I would always answer the same way. You know, there's nothing in the intelligence that says it's here, but bin Laden would like nothing more than to bring the fight to America. And it was because the president kept on asking about, you know, could it, could it be here? Could it be here? Could it be here? That I asked that the August 6th PDB be written. And, you know, there's been a lot talked about it over the years, but the bottom line on it was it simply said what George and I had been saying to the president, you know, more sentences, but the bottom line was the same. You know, he wants to hit us here. He's wanted to hit us here for a long time. He sees that as key to reaching his objective of driving us out of the Middle East. Um, It didn't provide any evidence that he was at that moment planning to do so. It talked about some past plots, um, and it talked about why it was so important to him, but it didn't give the president any specificity to act on. So I didn't treat it as a hair on fire piece when I briefed it, nor did he read it that way. When did you realize that the hit back would be Afghanistan? Was there any doubt in your mind that's where you thought he was? 
Uh, do you know? Yeah. Did you know roughly where he was thought within that country? And was there there was an overture put to Mullah Omar? You have a chance to save yourself, right? Yes, there was. Um, so the president, you know, being the president and being George Bush, you know, he wanted to hit back and hit back hard. Um, so his instinct was, you know, we're going to war. Um, but they did. There was a small diplomatic effort, right? And the diplomatic effort was to do what you just said: say to the Taliban, you know, hand them over, or else. And the Taliban, it's not that they didn't respond; they said no. Um, and you know, our our chief of station in Islamabad actually sat down with the Taliban and kind of put that offer on the table, and the answer was no. Um, so at that moment, right, we knew we were going to war. We didn't know where he was or where any of his men were because one of the things that happened was prior to 9-11, they, 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 they went to the hills, literally went to the hills, right? Because they thought we were going to hit back the same way we did um, in 1998 after the East Africa embassy bombings, which was to throw, um, you know, a few, few cruise missiles at their training camps. So they emptied out of the training camps. So, you know, after 9-11, we were not sure exactly where they were or where bin Laden was. So, Mike, looking back that times, can you bring us inside what you were thinking, the pressure that you felt on your shoulders? I know the mutual respect you two had for each other, but still, it was get me information, get me intelligence. When's the next attack coming? It's easy for us to say, well, there was no major attack. There was no threat. That's not true, correct? It's not true at all. Um, you know, the, the, the president felt, you know, and if he were talking to you right now, I think he would say this, right? He, he felt, he feels that a president's number one job is to protect the American people. I happen to agree with him. Um, that is the president's number one job. Um, and he thought he failed that day, right? And um, he, you know, he was determined not to let that happen again. And what happened on 9-11 wasn't the only al-Qaeda plot to attack the homeland. There were multiple plots. Um, there was so much threat reporting in the months after 9-11 um, that George Tenet and I, when we walked from his office in the old executive office building across West Executive Avenue into the West Wing, we would look at each other and we would literally say, Brian, we would say, is this the day we're going to get hit again? Um, and it was not just intelligence reporting about plans to attack the United States. There was intelligence reporting about um, bin Laden trying to acquire a Pakistani nuclear weapon, right, and, and al-Qaeda working on biological weapons and chemical weapons. So, you know, the, 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 the context of the times was you could not create a more tense situation, right, for a president who had just suffered the worst attack on the homeland in the history of the country and hear his intelligence briefer every morning is bringing him these additional threats, um, so it was an extraordinarily tense time. You know, he's he's criticized for some of the decisions he made um, after after 9/11 to protect the country. Um, you know, but one of the things he said to me um, at one point, um, we were talking about Israel and what the Israelis do to protect themselves from terrorism, and he said, Michael, you know, since 9/11, I now understand why Israel does what it does to protect themselves. Right, um, and and. You know, I understood it. I, I, I felt he was exactly right. The other thing you guys went out of your way to do is say, this attack is not on all Muslims. You did a lot of reach, uh, outreach to Muslim communities. We're not going to make this a religious war. I remember that being very cognizant, uh, you guys going out of your way to do that. In uh, retrospect, did you ever expect the Taliban to fall so quick 
And was the original plan to get out quick? So the plan, right, and this was a CIA plan. Um, in fact, at, the, at, at Camp David on um, September 15th, a Saturday after 9-11, only five days after, after 9-11, you know, there was a National Security Council meeting, and the CIA was the only organization to bring a plan to the table. And it wasn't because we were that good. It was because Sandy Berger in the last months of the Clinton administration had asked us for a plan. He said to us, if you were unconstrained by resources and if you were unconstrained by covert action authorities, in other words, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you do to degrade this group? And so we put together this this package that we called the Blue Sky Memo, right? If we could have everything we wanted. Um, the Clinton administration ended before anybody could consider that, and then it sat on, this, on the shelf for a while. But on 9-11, we pulled it out and dusted it off, and we said to the President Bush, here it is. Here's the plan. And he thought about it for one day, and he said, you know, go. I want you guys to be the first in. And the plan was, plan was really simple. The plan was to become the insurgents in Afghanistan. The plan was to work with a group called the Northern Alliance, which the Taliban had never been able to bring under control, to work with them. They had a bit of a military and to work with them and drive south towards Kabul. And then in the southern part of the country to create an uprising among the tribes in the southern part of the country. And we did both of those things. So we we came at Kabul from both directions. And I think the Taliban was surprised by the speed. They were surprised by the, the two fronts. They were surprised by American air power. So it wasn't just CIA on the ground. It was U.S. Special Forces who were with us who were calling in airstrikes on Taliban positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so by the, 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 one of the ironies here is by the end of December, early January, we had driven the Taliban from power, and all of the al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan were either dead, captured, or they had escaped and gone off to various places, mostly to Pakistan. So by the end of December, early January, al-Qaeda is no longer in Afghanistan. So, you know, that for me is round one, and we won round one, and we won it quickly um, and convincingly. Um, you know, the, the, the goal changed subsequently, as you know, and that's the war we ended up losing. Uh, almost by choice. I mean, we, you guys didn't win it, to, you know, afterwards. Uh, they didn't win a, a lose a tactical battle. It was uh, a matter of not stopping the outside sources that were fueling and sustaining the Taliban, which is Pakistan. And does that remain like, yeah, I mean, if you look at Pakistan right now, it still is the problem. I mean, today they're leading the charge to wipe out what was left of what we might call the Northern Alliance. So this week, so they they were the ones that Gahani was complaining about to now public transcript to Milley and Biden, President Biden. Uh, saying the Pakistanis have helped bring in ten to fifteen thousand terrorist groups it is a full-blown insurgency. Pakistan, where yeah, was Bin so, Laden? So, so, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me say two things about this. One is, is you know, I went to visit our folks, CIA's folks in Afghanistan, dozens of times. You know, I felt that was really important to go see them on the front lines. And whenever I did that, I would see President Karzai, and he would always raise with me. Pakistan and what the Pakistanis were doing to help the Taliban. And he was absolutely right. Every time he raised it, he was absolutely right. He was deeply frustrated. The other thing I'll tell you is 
I heard President Obama in the sit room numerous times ask his generals, um, you know, al-Qaeda is in Pakistan, being protected by the Pakistanis. You know, we're in Afghanistan, right? And al-Qaeda is across the border in Pakistan. You know, that doesn't there's – there's, there's an incongruence here, right? Um, the problem is Pakistan. The other thing I'll say here, though, is that I think all of this is going to blow back on the Pakistanis in a huge way. So there's a group called the Pakistani Taliban. And the Pakistani Taliban, um, they're Pakistanis, and they want to overthrow the Pakistani government. And when we had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, they were in Pakistan, so they were easy for the Pakistanis to get at. Well, now they've moved into Afghanistan, and they're welcomed there by the Taliban. Now they're coming across the border from Afghanistan into Pakistan, attacking the Pakistanis and trying to overthrow the Pakistani state. So I'm deeply concerned about the stability of Pakistan, right, a country that's got nuclear weapons, right? So I think the Pakistanis are ultimately going to pay the price for the 20 years of horrific policies that they have pursued. I hope so, Mike, because that will be justice, because they are diabolical in playing both ends. I know they're not all bad, but, man, uh, they are very bad. Uh, and I just don't know if that if that country will ever change, but you would know better. Mike, your perspective yeah, you know, is unbelievable today, but also of yesterday. Yeah. Go, final thought? Yeah, I was just going to say, but at the end of the day, you don't want a extremist government in Islamabad with nuclear weapons, right? We don't want that. I hear that you. That would be the ultimate disaster. I'd feel a lot better if you were back in the CIA, but you're probably making a lot more money now, and you can sleep nights. Mike Morell, a former, former acting and deputy director of the CIA, best-selling author, and an analyst who serves as the president daily briefer, George W. Bush, on 9-11-2001, 20 years ago. Mike, thank you. You're welcome, Brian. Great to be with you. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's speculated that the plane is as big as a 737. It looked originally like it, it just hit three floors. As I see from this angle, it seems like more than three floors. And perhaps what's oh, most yeah. disturbing, Edie, I think is the time of day. This this time of morning is when people pour fall. into that building. And yeah. it, it, it's usually next to full. And that was uh, that was me in, in 2001 on the set of Fox and Friends, and we were just coming out of an interview with the wife of um, uh, of a of an artist that's in Matchbox 20, and we're just having a fun show, and all of a sudden we see in the break uh, a plane had hit the building. We were watching one of the local feeds in New York, and they were able to come on air, and they were able to give us some information. For the most part, we just responded for, to what we saw. So at 8.56, a plane hit the building. At 9.03, another one would hit. At 9.35, the Pentagon would be hit. And here we are 20 years later looking back, hoping people don't forget and making sure uh, they don't. Now, after that show, everyone kind of sat there. We watched. I was seeing that we replayed so often. I was wondering how many planes were going to hit because we're seeing it from so many different angles. But after the second plane was hit, I went down. Uh, and the newsroom was really one room. I mean, uh, Fox was this basement, and in the C1 level, it's just one basement where you would walk around and you'd see one show, five people, one show, five people would staff the whole thing. So I'd walk around just asking people, what are we doing? Where are we going? And they said, well, they're going to shut down the airports. They're not sure if there's any more planes. So I thought if I can convince them to give me a crew, because I was known mostly as a sports guy back then, 
Uh, they did and they would. And I went with uh, a guy that's now an executive here, and we went down and worked our way through. And as we're driving, we stopped in the middle because we were looking down 6th Avenue and watching the towers burn. And as a good shooter that he was, a, uh, a cameraman, he said, I got to shoot this now. We need this angle. And then a guy in the Pentagon was there with a short sleeve jean shirt, and he was sitting there, and he was cursing. And I go, what's going on? He said, the Pentagon was just hit. I said, I was just listening to the local station, 1010 Winds, and they don't even have that. He goes, I'm, call- I'm on the phone with the Pentagon. So clearly he was an important guy. I don't uh, – I'll never remember who he is. I can roughly remember what he looks like. But by the time we wove down there and I was able to get there, the towers had fallen. When the towers had fallen, as we finally got close, our, our crew that we were told on a certain block, a certain radius, they were gone because they had to move their, car, move their truck. They were overwhelmed with all the dust. But the thing that I remember from that day more than anything else is there was dust everywhere. You did not see the street. Everything was white. It was like the surface of the moon. In fact, I still have those shoes today with the same toxic dust on it. I saw the papers, the amount of paperwork everywhere and shoes. People blown out of their shoes, ran out of their shoes, uh, sadly no longer needed their shoes. They were everywhere. Just some of the reflections 20 years later. Please say, take some time and take in the coverage throughout the day and throughout tomorrow and throughout this weekend. It is important that people get this story right because the threat remains even if people in this administration think it's gone. We know different. Thanks for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com. Tell me what you think about what we said. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.